Welcome to Bio-Citizen Banter, a podcast dedicated to environmental philosophy, featuring lively discussions between people active in the effort to bring biotic health and diversity to our communities and commonwealth. Hello, this is Ursa, Director of Bio-Citizen New York. This week's podcast features an interview by Dr. Kurt Heidinger with Javiera Malabron Munoz, a Chilean conservation biologist and philosopher who teaches field environmental philosophy in the Omora Ethnobotanical Park in the Cape Horn Archipelago. I'm speaking with Javi, who is a protege and a colleague of my very good friends, Ricardo Rozzi and Francisco Masardo, who are Chileans who do amazing things within the world of environmental philosophy. And I have recently published a book with Ricardo and Francisca about Darwin's voyages in the Cape Horn region. So today we're going to talk to Javi and ask her some questions about what goes on there in Chile, way down in Cape Horn at this place called the Omora Ethnobotanical Park. Because Javi, you've worked there for over five years now, haven't you? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and continue working from a distance. And I'm, uh, I'm just going to thank you for having excellent English speaking skills because I have no <laughs> Spanish speaking skills at all. So I bow to you. I think that our listeners would love just to start off with an account of growing up as a young woman in Chile and becoming interested in nature and then uh, developing as you have developed to this moment as somebody who's really working hard and achieving great things. Oh, well, uh, as some of you might know, uh, Chile is a very special place because it's, it's a very narrow but very long piece of land between a very cold ocean and a very, very tall mountain range. And with that and other... Uh, biophysical aspects, we have almost any type of landscape and climate that you can imagine. So going from the far north to the far, far south, we have everything, deserts, mountains, valleys, Mediterranean climate, so many rivers and glacial lakes and forests and archipelagos and everything. And I have been lucky to to spend most of my life traveling around from the driest desert in the world to the uh, Cape Horn Archipelago. And I've been surrounded by people that have been able to answer my questions about uh, science, about nature, about philosophy, um, social sciences and everything. So uh, for me, it was really important to have grown and to be able to travel around the country, but also to have amazing people around me that could help me find answers to all my many, many questions. Wow. And that led me to, to meet Ricardo and Francisca and work with them at the Umora Park. And um, is your father a biologist? Yes. So he-, he actually went to school with Ricardo. And that's how I, I knew about Ricardo and his work. And that and a chance that I, I read in a web page of my university about the, the course, the uh, Tracing Darwin's Path course that Ricardo 
uh, does in, in Puerto Williams, in, in the Omora Park. And so I contacted him and say like, hey, I, I saw this and I'm very interested and like, how can I go? When can I go? And after I went, I was like, hey, 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 I need to keep working with you. Take me back. I want to go back. And so I did. Oh, that's great. So what university, were what university were you studying at then? I, I studied at Universidad de Chile in Santiago, which was a very, in a way, it was a really easy decision because as, as I've been saying, I've, deep down, I've always been a biologist. But in a way, it was Santiago, and I didn't want to go to the big, big city because it, it, it's not my kind of environment. But I, I went there because it was the only place where I knew that I could get, I, I could gain the, the tools that I needed to work in what I wanted to work. So Santiago is a really large city, and it's almost like LA or Phoenix or something. It's kind of a desert city. It's dry and dusty. Also has a an air pollution problem that's like Denver, yes. where the the fumes get trapped by the mountains. So, yeah. So the the city is in a very deep valley, and it's surrounded by mountains everywhere. So the the pollution kind of gets trapped in this sort of I don't know bowl or something, uh, and it's very cramped. To it. like the density is is very high so and also it's as you say is kind of a desert it's in the Mediterranean area of Chile so it's more or less like LA I guess. When you were imagining going to to study at the Amora Ethno Botanical Park did you have any experience at all in like the the southern forest the sub-Antarctic forests or anything? Um I had been in Punta Arenas once for about a month and a half, and I was able to travel a bit around the city and also went to uh, Puerto Natales and Cerro Castillo, which is a very tiny, tiny town next to Torres del Paine National Park. Uh, so I knew a bit about the, the environment and the forest and the steppe and everything, but I hadn't studied it like deeply before. Is there a, a bioregional difference in the character of like the Tierra de Fuego and maybe the Puerto Natales area versus the Cape Horn area? Um, yeah, the main difference is, um, I mean, there are two differences. One is climate and the other one is terrain. So the geography on the west side of the of the continent in that in that tip of the of the Americas, uh, it's very um, accidented, one might say. Uh, many islands and fjords and channels and mountains and and so all the moisture that comes from the ocean with with the westerlies uh, gets kind of, kind of trapped in this in this very rough terrain. And then to the other side, going going east on the on the continent, uh, it's more flat. So and and the the air doesn't carry much moisture anymore. So it's it's more dry and very windy. Mm -hmm. So the the vegetation on both sides is very different. On the west side, you have very dense forest, and on the east side, you have 
some clusters of forests and stuff, but it's mostly grasslands, like the plains in the States, I guess. Mm-hmm. When you visited the Cape Horn region for the first time, was it just another kind of place that you visited, like a tourist place? I, I've never considered myself a tourist in my own country, and I try not to consider myself a tourist anywhere I, I traveled to, actually. But the first time that I went to the Cape Horn area, I, I was in a class. I, I was riding the ferry with my, with my friends, classmates that I'd met two or three days before. Um, going, going to a classroom, kind of, in a classroom in a forest or in the shore or in a, in a lake or a river or something, but it was a classroom and I was studying and I was reading and I was uh, discussing with my classmates and I was asking questions and I was observing all around me. So no, I, I, I was not a, a tourist at all. Do uh, a lot of Chileans have the opportunity to get down into the Cape Horn region? It's not very easy because it's an island and I mean, many islands, it's really isolated um, because I mean first you have to get to Punta Arenas and then you have to either take a plane or a, a ferry boat to Puerto Williams which is the main uh, city in, in, in this area and the southernmost city in the world um, but it's, it's not easy and it's not very um, cheap either so I wouldn't say that many people have the opportunity. I, I know I'm, I'm very um, I'm very fortunate to have been able to go there not just once but five times. But I don't know. I guess if you save enough money, if you have the interest and save enough money, you can. Of course, you can go. Well, I, I, what I'm being is a little cagey. What I'm trying to get the listeners to understand is that getting to the Amora Ethno Botanical Park is a voyage unto itself. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's not a tourist attraction for most people because it is kind of an endurance race, a marathon. Um, you're exposed to cold, to wet, to winds, to waters that if you fall into, you can die in like a minute. <laughs> even if you're <laughs> on the ferry, they might not stop the ferry. They might not even know you fell over. And so the classroom that uh, has been established down there with the University of Magallanes and the University of North Texas and the Amora Foundation is a very special and unique place. And for anybody who, who studies there and anybody who would travel there, we would, we would say it's kind of on a bucket list. You have an opportunity maybe once in your life to visit the Cape Horn region. And yes. I know that my friends in Chile um, have understood that all along and that when people come to study and visit that you use your time very wisely. It's usually in your winter, um, I'm sorry, your summer, our winter, uh-huh. your winter, uh-huh. around Christmas time, and a couple weeks after, there'll be a whole bunch of people studying and, and roaming the Amora Ethnobotanical Park and and the Dientes Mountains. And so maybe you could just tell us what you have studied there and what you have taught there, and maybe introduce the 
listeners to the idea of field environmental philosophy. Okay, so the Cape Horn area, the Cape Horn Biosphere Reserve, actually, is a very interesting place in, in many, many ways. Um, it's, a, it's one of the very few biosphere reserves, actually the, the only one in Chile that combines uh, land and marine areas. So uh, there we study the interaction between the, the, the ocean or the sea uh, with the land through water, through air, through food chains uh, and so on. So we've, I've, I've been on the field working with uh, capturing birds with mist nets uh, collecting tiny insects and other uh, invertebrate, but not just collecting. We've been, this is a very interesting thing because we take them, we observe them, we take pictures, and then we return them to their homes, the exact same place where we took them. Because we, we understand that they, they are living beings with a life purpose, just like us, and, and so we just ask permission, we look at them, we interact with them, but, when, but then we return them to their homes so they can continue with their lives. And this is a very important thing uh, that is, um, is part of the whole philosophy uh, of the field environmental philosophy methodology, to understand that we, we are co-inhabitants. We, uh, we share a habitat with the, the other beings that live around us and next to us. So the field environmental philosophy is basically a methodology that takes you into these places and, and teaches you or guides you to, to look at things in many different ways. So we started by going into the field or reading a, a text or a book or a, I don't know, a scientific paper or a philosophical essay and we study what we see, we study what we read, we study what we, what we see in nature. We read, as Ricardo likes to say, we read the book of nature and we read the book of knowledge. And within that, we can, we can have an understanding of the, the environment around, the, the habitat around us uh, from many different perspectives. And, and so, with this understanding, we, we can find ways of communicating what we know to other people that maybe don't have the opportunity to, to have these experiences or living other places, but can, can have an understanding because there are similar processes going around in, 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 in their homes. And, and so it's, it's a way of, Understanding our place within uh, our habitat, along with every other being that we live with. Can you tell us a little bit about how the idea of multiple perspectives appears in the field when you're doing field environmental philosophy? Well, so for the Tracing Darwin's Path course that takes place, as you said, uh, the, the end of the year to the middle of January. It's, uh, I think it's a critical aspect of the course, the, this interdisciplinary group of people, because it's not only the professors. We've had uh, writers and artists and ecologists and philosophers and 
all kinds of uh, researchers and professors from different universities, right? But we've also had an amazing uh, mixture of people, students coming too. Like I, I, I came from environmental biology and I expected to find a bunch of other biologists or ecologists and maybe a couple of philosophers or philosophy students, I mean, but then I, I found out that I had one of my classmates who was an uh, economy major, there was a drama major, uh, uh, journalism, I don't know, all kinds of, of people coming from all over the, the, the academic uh, spectrum with all the professors and all the students. We have so many different ways of looking into things. And not only from academia, we also have people from Japan, from Switzerland, from Peru, Chile, the U.S., and many, many different states in the U.S., all of these different perspectives from their social and personal and academic background also adds to these very, very rich uh, discussions and uh, conversations that arise throughout the, the, the classes. Because we were, as I said, we were reading the Book of Nature, we're reading the philosophy and scientific books and stuff. And, and so we, we build a conversation and reasoning and we reach conclusions. And every year, these conclusions and these conversations are different. One of the perspectives that the Omora Foundation has been very interested in and obviously named the Ethnobotanical Park, the Omora Ethnobotanical Park, comes from the name Omora. Do you ever bring up Omora? Does Omora ever get discussed in Puerto Williams or as part of? Yes, yes, totally. Um, we, We really like the name of the park and we really like the story behind it. Uh, and it's a mixture of a lot of things. For, in, for one, you have the, the myth, legend, uh, of Yagan origin uh, about this, this character, Omora, which is the hummingbird. But also we, we weave into it the story of the park itself. Why it's located in that place in particular uh, and how, how it was born and how all the work that, that is done there, how it began. So uh, whether it's with the students or whether it's with other visitors or even tourists that come and, and walk through the park, we always try to weave this story in because it's a, it's a cautionary tale um, that it's really interesting. Can you tell so, of the story? Yes, no, I'm going to tell the story. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a very, it's a very beautiful uh, tale about this, this area. Uh, in a very, very uh, ancient time when, according to the Yagan, the people were animals and the animals were people. So they were living through a very, very great drought and they were all very, very thirsty and dying of thirst. And because there wasn't water, they, they didn't have enough food. And, and also they, they started to become desperate. And, sometime, and, and at one point, someone discovered that 
there was a fox that had a little lagoon. But this fox didn't want to share the water and he built a huge fence around it. So, so he, so nobody could steal the water, right? And, and so the word spread and the animals heard about this little lagoon that the fox had. And they all went to the fox and asked for water because they were dying of thirst. And the, the fox said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to share my, my water because if I do, you're going to drink all of it. And then I'm going to die of thirst. So the animals went to the hummingbird, which in, in, in young culture, it's kind of a, a warrior or something. And they, they asked the, the hummingbird for help. And he went to the, the fox and tried to reason with him, but the fox didn't budge. And so eventually, sadly, the, the hummingbird had to kill the fox. That is actually why in the Omora Park logo, there is a hummingbird grabbing a spear. And so the hummingbird killed the, the fox and everybody rushed into the lagoon and they drank all the water and then they didn't have water any, anymore again. <laughs> and so, yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the fox was right, in a way. So the hummingbird was feeling very guilty because he, he, had, he had killed someone and still he hadn't fixed the, the problem, right? So he went to his grandmother, the owl. And it's interesting that in Yagan culture, as, as is in many, many other cultures, the owl is the, the figure of... Um, wisdom, right? So he went to the owl and asked grandma, what can I do? Why, how can I fix this? And so the owl told him to gather all the animals, all the birds and all the, the, the mice and, and everybody um, and tell them, especially the birds, tell them to grab a, a handful of of mud from the bottom of the, the lake and then fly to the top of every mountain, the highest mountains, and drop this uh, handful of mud into the top of the mountains. And so the hummingbird told them to do this and they did. And from the mud in every, in every top of every mountain, that was a river was born. And so the water started to flow again through the valleys and filling the, the lakes and, and so on. And so now we have all this water that is so much water in, in, the, whole, um, in the whole region, in the whole uh, archipelago. Wow. So you have told us about how the Amora Ethno Botanical Park is a kind of cosmopolitan learning area where people from all over the world can convene in this short moment, you know, three weeks or so, that's kind of highly pressurized and, and very intense. Very intense learning, yeah. yeah. Uh, very, so that um, emotions are very high. Everybody's sweating and everybody's getting cold and everybody <laughs> is walking long distances. And, and not getting enough sleep. And not getting enough sleep because tell us about the crepuscular light that happens. Yeah. Oh yes, this is, a, this, is, this is wild. I mean, for me, 
every time I go there, it takes me a few days to get used to it because since we're so far south, there is a, a period of the year around the solstice, the, our summer solstice, that it doesn't get completely dark at all. So we have like, I don't know, the sun sets around 11 or something, and then we have these beautiful uh, colored clouds in the sky. And yeah, of course it's darker, but it's not like completely black. And then around 3 a.m. The, the, the sun starts to rise again. And then you have like full daylight at around 4 a.m. or something. So if you want to sleep and you need to, to be like in a dark place for it to, to work, then you have to put like a, I don't know, a, a blanket over the, uh, over the curtains or something because it's, it's daylight, like so, so long. And so this um, becomes part of the psychological, physical, emotional backdrop for all the things that you've described where uh, yes. people don't, know quite often <laughs> what time it is and are surprised to find out that they're like eating lunch at nine o'clock at night. Um, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, well, we, we try to keep uh, a schedule as much as possible. So it's a cosmopolitan experience, which is really yes. good for everybody to know that their culture is wonderful and unique, but there are so many other cultures and you get a chance to meet people from all around the world. You also get to meet some of the nice Yagan people who yes. have been living on the island, as you say, for eons and have their own perspective on things, which is really a, a great corrective in their TEK, their traditional ecological knowledge, yes. which, um, is going to always be valuable, especially now during the COVID-19 crisis, <laughs> when we see a lot of yeah. technology failing and people are looking around and wondering how, how can we live with, with off the land? How can, and you said co-inhabit, how all of a sudden we're co-inhabiting with all the creatures that know how to live outside and maybe looking out the window and going, I wish I could be a bird. <laughs> Who knows, like, where to get food? <laughs> because I don't want to go back to the supermarket because it's so frightening now. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of co-inhabitation? Co-inhabitation, it's, uh, it's part of the, the environmental ethics that, uh, that we work with, that uh, Ricardo has, uh, like, worked and developed from, from his studies in, in biology and also philosophy. Um, and it's, of course, complementary to the field environmental philosophy in a way that we, we study and we observe the environment and whatever is that we are studying. We're not studying it as a, an object, as something that doesn't have a soul, so to speak. We, we look at them as, as beings, as subjects that are related to us that are part of, uh, in a way, a part of our family. And we, we share a lot of similarities with these with this, uh, individuals or these uh, insects or birds or even plants because we'll breathe. We, birds and, and insects, just like us, they, they, have, they have eyes, they have beating hearts, 
the the plants have have a kind of a, a purpose. They 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 grow. They 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 grow trying to reach the sun. They have um, they have chloroplasts where they where they breathe and they 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 fabricate their their food. So there are a lot of small or big things that are similar between us and them. And if we go to the forest or if we think about the, the Aboriginal people of any place in the world, mostly, they lived right alongside these, these other uh, beings. They shared a home with the birds, with the toads, with the snakes, with the fish, with the insects, with everybody else. So we are sharing uh, we are sharing a home and we are sharing the, the fruits of this environment. We're sharing the food, we're sharing the water. So the, the term co-inhabitant comes from, sort of comes from the, the term of, in, in, in Spanish, compañero, like a partner. Uh, compañero comes from, from, the, from a, a, a term in Latin that is companis, which means to share the bread. So a, a partner, compañero in Spanish, it's a, it's a person with whom you share your bread or your food, or in this case, a home. Could this be done in Santiago and New York City? Absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, of course, uh, the, the, the fact that Omoda Park is in a place that is so isolated and so pristine and 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 everything. It, it's it's a plus, of course. It's it, it's really interesting to be able to see nature sort of in a wild form, but it's not really wild because the Omoda Park, a hundred or fifty years ago, used to be uh, an hacienda, and there were. Um, there was cattle and there was logging and there was farming and stuff in, in the same place where we work and, and do research right now. And we do education too, of course. So what I'm trying to say is that nature is not as far as some people might think. Of course, we live in, in cities and there is cement all around us and thick walls and, and roofs and, and cars and buses and trucks and stuff all around us. But there is still nature everywhere, even in, 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 a, in a potted plant or in a small backyard or in a, a tiny square or a tiny park a couple of blocks away from home or whatever. We can find nature and we can find all in all these little places. And what's interesting and what's uh, remarkable is that field environmental philosophy as a methodology can be sort of modified and applied anywhere. What you're doing is very exciting. We were going to have you come to the United States this summer so that we could teach together, Javi. That you I was would, so excited about it. <laughs> no, you will always have an invitation to come and to teach. I've heard that you're an excellent hiker on top of everything else and that you really love the wilderness. 
why would you bring people up into the wilderness? Why not just keep them down in the classrooms, indoor and outdoors, right by the side of the Beagle Channel? I could give you a really long list of reasons, uh, from the aesthetics to the academic, but I'm going to give you a couple of examples. When I did the course in 2015, we, we went, the whole class, we went camping to one of the lakes in, in the park, and one of our classes took us all the way up to the base of the mountain. I mean, to almost the top of the mountain, actually, uh, to, to see the point where the river uh, was born. And, and there we took samples of microinvertebrates from, from this tiny stream that then turned into a big river with waterfalls and one lake and then the other lake and then the other lake and then more waterfalls all the way down to the the ocean to the beagle channel and just that just the experience of going all the way up to the snow even if it's summer all the way up to the snow and then sort of walk down next to the river and rounding the lakes and then getting all the way down to the Beagle Channel in just a few hours, if you do it in, in just one uh, hike down, it's impressive because we, we know from, from, from school and university and general knowledge that the rivers are born in the top of the mountain. And here in my hometown, I can see the mountains right, right behind me and they're huge. But the, the fact of being able to walk the whole length of the river in just a few hours and see the difference between the high Andean that some might call alpine, but I don't, from the high Andean to one lake and then the other and then the other and then the ocean, it's, it's impressive because you see the, the change of, of the landscape, you, you feel the change of the, the, the temperature of the water, you see the, the change of the individuals that live along the river from the top of the mountain to the ocean. So that is one very impressive thing to, to experience. And beyond the, the course and beyond the... Um, the work that is, is done in, in the park, I think doing the, the hike, the whole Dientes de Navarino hike, which is um, around 32 kilometers that you can do in two, three, four, five days, whatever, however fast or however fast you want to go, um, all the way up to the mountain to the other side of the island and then rounding more lakes and more rivers and going through more forests and seeing seeing the 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 actual Cape Corn archipelago in the in, in the distance and then going back up to through the mountain again and, and down again to the Beagle Channel. It's it's impressive. It's a it, it's an incredible journey in by itself. And the first time I, I did this, I went with two archaeologists. I was very, very lucky. And we, we saw signs of inhabitation, like ancient inhabitation, all the way up into the top of the mountain, where the Yakan people would go up to, to get a special kind of stone to, to make their tools. So they didn't just live in, in the shore or in the water, in the canoes as 
as we 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 usually imagine them, but they they also go, went all the way up, and and so there is a lot of of history, human and natural history, that you that you can see all throughout the this circuit, and and learn from it, and be amazed by it. Wow! So um, why don't you call it the Alpine area? Because the Alpine area is in the Alps, which is a mountain range in Europe, and we are in South America. And this mountain range is called the Andes, so it's the High Andean. We're going to conclude now. Is there anything you'd like to say before we go to the people of the United States or ask a question or two that they should think about, maybe? I, I would remind them that nature is really really everywhere and even if we we're locked in because of this COVID-19 situation and even if we live in a big city with huge buildings and concrete streets all around us uh, we can still find nature everywhere um, and that it's important to to keep that connection because it keeps us rooted and it keeps us sane in a way and it it gives us perspective of of how frail life is especially with this situation worldwide uh, how precious life is and and how how big our impact has been on nature, on the whole biosphere. And in a way, I feel like, I'm gonna say something that, that might be very controversial, but in a way, I, I feel like all these diseases and all these things that are happening, it's, it's in part, it's kind of a, a reaction of, of nature trying to tell us to slow down and, and be more conscientious about the the other beings that live with us are co-inhabitants.